Hello, and welcome to another audio version of Burnt Toast. This is a newsletter where we explore questions and sometimes answers around fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm a journalist who covers weight stigma and diet culture. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia. And today I am chatting with Christy Harrison, who is a dietitian, host of the beloved Food Psych podcast, and author of Anti-Diet, one of my favorite books, and the forthcoming Rethinking Wellness. Welcome, Christy. Thanks, Virginia. So good to be here. I'm so glad to have you on. Um, Christy and I have been guests on each other's podcasts. We've sort of traded that back and forth over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is fun to be doing it again. So Christy, so I am sure most of my listeners are going to know your work because um, you are kind of a legend in this space. But <laughs> why don't you give us a little background on you and your work? Um, and we'll also chat about yeah how we met. Yeah, totally. So um, like you said, I'm a journalist and dietitian. I started my career as a journalist and also had my own undiagnosed eating disorder at the time. And so it kind of made me obsessed with food, nutrition and health. And that's what I sort of fell into reporting on. And, you know, that can really exacerbate disordered eating. And I think even in people who don't have pre-existing disordered eating, sometimes falling into those beats can sort of create some disorder in one's relationship with food. So I really sort of struggled with that, but was slowly recovering and had a therapist and had some good people around me kind of supporting me um, to at least expand my horizons a little bit with food. And I ended up working at a food magazine, Gourmet, RIP, um, <laughs> worked there for a couple of years until it folded. And during that time, I was sort of you know, realizing that the magazine was maybe a little bit on the rocks and the magazine industry in general was not a great, uh, you know, <laughs> not a sustainable business model. Yes. Yeah. Not the most sustainable. And that has really kind of proven to be true. So I went back to school to get my dietitian's license and get my master's in public health nutrition. And at the time, the goal was like, be the next Michael Pollan. That was kind of my my, or like, you know, Michael Pollan meets Marion Nestle. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to write about sustainability and food systems and ending the quote unquote obesity epidemic. You know, I was really just bought into that rhetoric. And I think it came out of my own disorder with food and my own kind of bought inness to diet culture and to that, you know, specifically that version of diet culture that I now call the wellness diet, which is sort of birthed by the Michael Pollan paradigm, you know, like, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, right? Mm-hmm. Which is enough to just drive a person up a wall, you know, yes. thinking about kind of the minutia of that. And of course, my thinking about like calories and carbs and all the diet, the sort of overt diet culture stuff never really went away either. So it was just a hot mess in my <laughs> head. <laughs> and fortunately, when I was in grad school, I started researching a book that I never ended up writing, but that kind of in a winding roundabout way, sort of became the basis of anti-diet 10 years later. Um, And that original book that I was researching was about emotional eating. I considered myself an emotional eater at the time, and I now can see that it's because I wasn't eating enough. And Mm. when people are deprived of food, it makes them eat more in response to emotions. And it also can make them eat, eat more and sort of attribute it to emotions when really it's actually more attributed to the deprivation itself, to the hunger um, and so, you know, I, I wasn't really aware of all that, but I started to discover research showing those things. I discovered research by Janet Pollavi and Mike, I think it's Michael Herman, mm-hmm. Pollavi and Herman on like 
you know, restrained eating and the effects of that. And I discovered the book Intuitive Eating. And I think those things really started to shift my relationship with food, especially the book Intuitive Eating. Um, and I started to try to practice that and brought it into my therapy. And, you know, fortunately, I had been an intuitive eater up until the age of 20 when my eating disorder started because, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But luckily, like, I w- I no one interfered in my relationship with food growing mm-hmm. up. And so I was mm-hmm. able to have that intuitive relationship with food, um, I think largely because of thin privilege, the privilege of being thin enough to have nobody say, you know, you're too big, you need to lose weight or whatever. Right, right. And also the privilege of having food security. So those things had sort of allowed me to, to keep on eating intuitively up and, in, you know, through my adolescence and stuff. And I think it was a little bit easier to click back into it because I had that base, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it did still take a long time. It took years to really kind of heal my relationship with food, get back to a place of intuitive eating. But I think having that sort of memory was helpful. And yeah, so then, definitely. you know, once, once I had gone through that, I, um, you know, was now a, a nutritionist and soon to be, you know, full-fledged dietitian. It took me a long time to like go through that final step of getting the license. But I worked for three years as a nutritionist at the city department of health and, that's while I was recovering and sort of relearning intuitive eating. And so just the cognitive dissonance of kind of like what I was teaching and preaching to people and Mm -hmm. what I was doing in my own life started to be pretty clear to me and, and sort of, you know, started me thinking a lot more about people's relationships with food and kind of what makes someone a disordered eater versus having a peaceful relationship with food and realized that that was really the direction I wanted to go in my career. So that's sort of what led into the eating disorder field and to starting the podcast in 2013 and, you know, kind of to where I ended up now, I guess. Um, And along the way, of course, I picked up more and more about health at every size and kind of an anti-diet approach that I Mm -hmm. think is really necessary for work with disordered eating, but also just for working with any client on any nutritional sort of uh, issue, you know, that I think, people of all shapes and sizes and people of all backgrounds really deserve to have an intuitive relationship with food and a peaceful relationship with food and not to be told, you know, what to eat or policed about their food choices. So that's really the perspective I come from now is, you know, how can I partner with people and support people through my writing and my other journalistic work to reconnect with their own innate wisdom about food and nutrition and their, and their bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the piece that's of the conversation that I just see missing over and over when we look at, you know, the work of the Michael Pollans of the world or, you know, certainly the wellness industry where it is today. It's like there's no recognition of the emotional piece of this, of the, you know, the oppression that many people face around their bodies and the way the world treats them for their bodies. And yeah, you kind of bring that conversation out in a very important way. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's really seen as like education is the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know anyone of any background really who, you know, I've seen as a client who hasn't sort of quote unquote known what they were supposed to be doing. Right. Right, And come in saying, you're going to tell me I'm bad. I eat this. Oh, it's, you know, so ashamed of myself. I eat a lot of, you know, processed food or whatever. It's like people know what the quote unquote rules are. Mm -hmm. And yet you know, the fact that they're not 
following them, I think speaks to like the arbitrariness and messed upness of the rules themselves. And And the unsustainability of them, ironically, given that it's often framed as a sustainable, you know, um, yeah, an effort to find sustainability. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I got to know Christy when I interviewed her for The Eating Instinct, and her story is in chapter two. So I will link in the transcript if you guys want to check that out. Um, Actually, it was excerpted by Medium, so you can read it for free or you can buy the book. It's up to you. Um, I recommend <laughs> buying the book. It's a wonderful book. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I remember when we first met, we both had these sort of early experiences in the magazine world, um, which was just, you know, and I was, I was at a magazine called Organic Style. So it was sort of in the same realm, um, but not a food magazine full on, but, you know, very much like incubators of a lot of this wellness industry stuff in the, in the early years of that. And we both had these kind of complicated journeys out of that space. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting and kind of cool. We both ended up where we are. So totally. <laughs> yeah, I know we could have gone such a different way. So yes, we could have. We, we came out of that. <laughs> So I've got some listener questions that I wanted to put your way. Um, and the first is kind of getting at this, this, um, intuitive eating versus processed food concept, which you sort of touched on a little bit there. And I, which I think is something folks struggle with a lot. I get a version of this question all the time, but this person wrote, I love the idea of intuitive eating, but wonder how it works with modern processed food which is designed to keep us eating more and more. I have heard that processed food hijacks our body's natural impulses, that sugar and white flour are addictive. I'm especially interested in this question as I get ready to introduce solid food to my baby. So a lot Mm. to unpack there. Yeah, totally. I get versions of this question a lot too. And I think it's really fascinating because when I first was you know, coming into the intuitive eating space, I still had a lot of that Michael Pollan baggage with me. And Mm -hmm. I was like, maybe there's a way to bridge these two worlds and think about, you know, food politics and sort of like, you know, thinking about how quote unquote bad processed foods are, but also through an intuitive eating lens where we're not demonizing anything. And, you know, through a lot of reflection on that sort of realized, A, it's not really possible to kind of bridge those two worlds because, the Michael Pollan world is so rooted in, you know, and I keep calling him out as the exemplar of this, but it's so many people now it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the whole wellness industry basically now. Um, But you know, the, the, that world is so rooted in this concept that fat is bad, that, you know, eating certain foods makes us fat and makes us inherently unhealthy. And so that we, you know, we need to cut out those foods and really demonizes certain foods and elevates others. And, I've come to see that that's really such a hallmark of diet culture and very much a hallmark of this modern guise of diet culture that I call the wellness diet, which is really diet culture sort of disguising itself as health and wellness when really it's still about restriction and deprivation Mm -hmm. and fat phobia and, you know, shaming certain types of bodies and elevating others and, you know, very much shame certain types of foods because both because of their perceived connection to higher weight and also because of sort of other baggage about those foods to being, you know, quote unquote unhealthy in and of, them, of themselves. Right. right. Um, and I think that really is just fundamentally incompatible with intuitive eating because one of the principles of intuitive eating is make peace with food, right? And this full unconditional permission to eat all foods And what I've really found and what the research bears out too, actually, is that when people are truly not deprived of anything, when they don't see anything as bad or off limits, 
they paradoxically are able to sort of modulate their eating in a way that is much more, you know, aligned with their body's desires and needs. And they're not in this restrict binge cycle with particular foods or with food in general. Mm-hmm. And there, there's some research that I cite in my book about, you know, the sort of effect of dietary restraint on people's eating and like even their brain activity in response to certain types of foods, specifically like sugar, processed foods, you know, quote unquote processed foods, um, and, and highly palatable foods, you know, that mm-hmm. are so demonized in our culture. And it, what they, what the researchers have found is that people who are restricted and deprived, people who are restrained eaters, you know, AKA chronic dieters, do eat more in the presence of, you know, highly palatable foods, do eat more, um, get more brain reward from sweet foods, and also eat more in the presence of um, advertising, you know, food mm-hmm. advertising mm-hmm. and also diet advertising, right? So there's ads sort of uh, telling, you know, encouraging people to eat more of foods that are delicious and then also ads that are encouraging people to eat less or eat more of the diet foods Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all of those things dieters are actually more susceptible to. So they'll eat more of the foods that they were told are quote unquote good as well as the foods that diet culture deems quote unquote bad in the presence of that kind of marketing, their brain, you know, like I said, the brain activity in response to sweet foods is far greater and people who are not restrained eaters, people who are not chronic dieters, don't show that same response. So they actually eat the same amount in the presence of food industry and diet industry marketing. They have way less brain activity in response to sweet foods. So they might still have some activity in the pleasure centers because, you know, of course, sweetness is Mm -hmm. pleasurable and we all deserve that. And, you know, we all deserve to have pleasure in food, but there's not this immense reward because there wasn't the immense deprivation. And so you know, that really tends to sort of go together is when you're more deprived of something, you tend to gravitate towards it more and you tend to have a greater reward from that food. And then, of course, the corresponding guilt afterwards. Right. Right. So it's this this cycle. And yeah, that's just so interesting. And it's the thing that I'm just thinking about as you're talking is how when we you know, it's we so often hear this conversation demonizing, you know, that highly palatable foods, processed foods, and demonizing food marketing for making us want more and more. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk very often about how much that marketing is playing into the restrict binge cycle. Like so much, mm-hmm. so much of the advertising around foods that are, you know, quote, highly palatable or whatever you want to call it is sort of playing into that rhetoric of like, you know, you, you should indulge, you should, mm-hmm. you know, you should like you, you should restrict and you should indulge. Like that message is not subtle at all no. <laughs> in the advertising. And then the diet industry messaging is like, re- like they're really flip sides of the same coin in terms of the marketing. And yeah, we don't think enough about like how much it's not really the food itself. It really is this conversation around the food that's making mm-hmm. us feel addicted to it or, you know, out of control around it. Yeah. And I think, you know, people like Michael Pollan will, and, and Eric Schlosser too, before him, like, um, and Mary Nestle and so, so And many the new others. guy, oh, Michael Moss. Oh, yeah. The yes. New, Michael Moss, the yeah. salt, sugar, fat. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah, they all sort of make this connection, which actually in research methods, we, we call the ecological fallacy, which is like, you know, X thing happened in this community around a certain time and Y thing also happened. So X was the cause of Y, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, it's like, you know, 
processed food advertising increased, portion sizes increased, and then quote unquote obesity increased. And mm-hmm. therefore, you know, this, these increases in portion sizes and the type of marketing, you know, made people fat basically. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is, well, if we actually step back and sort of look at the cultural context and what was happening leading up, you know, most people will cite like the 1970s as sort of when that supposedly started happening and people's mm-hmm. body sizes supposedly started increasing. Diet culture existed for, you know, about a hundred years before that and really mm-hmm. sort of a con- in, in a concerted way for 50 years or so before that. And it mm-hmm. was steadily increasing, you know, the, the, um, sort of market share of the diet industry and the number of people who were dieting and restricting really increased every decade from, you know, the 1910s onward, 1920s mm-hmm. onward mm-hmm. and reached kind of a fever pitch in the 1970s, you know? And yes. so that was the context in which, you know, portion sizes also increased and food advertising increased. But you have to think about like, well, what does that sort of mass food deprivation do to people, right? It makes them crave more food. And so, you know, if the industry was in fact kind of increasing its push and increasing portion sizes and stuff, I think some of that may have had to do with increased demand from starving, an increased number of, you know, starving or deprived people, right? That people, people want bigger portions when they're, when they're deprived of food. And so I think, you know, you have to, sort of take it as a whole, right? We can't just blame the food industry for, and and also like blaming anything for people's body size, I think is inherently fat phobic and weight yeah. stigmatizing, right? So it's, um, you know, I think, I think looking for a reason to point to for why people are larger is, is missing the point of, you know, we really don't need to be talking about weight in that kind of pathological way, but mm-hmm. I think we need to talk about this cultural context that makes people think their bodies are too large. It makes people fear fatness and demonize fatness and want to do anything to outrun it, including, you know, these really extreme, but sometimes also quote unquote, you know, less extreme or light or quote unquote healthy um, mm-hmm. diets, right? Mm-hmm. That any sort of restriction and taking yourself away from that intuitive relationship with food was really disordered in my mind. You know, yes. it, it interferes with that innate connection with food that we're all born with and sets people up oftentimes for that restrict binge cycle and other forms of disordered eating and exercise. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yes to all of that. <laughs> so on a sort of related note, um, the other thing I wanted to chat with you about is diet foods as a sort of cultural concept. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago about how I continue to love Diet Coke and also protein powder. I'm somehow mm-hmm. more embarrassed about the protein powder, but anyway, we can unpack that later. Um, even though it's been, you know, a good six years plus since I went on an official diet and, you know, I've been out of diet culture in terms of like my own head for, you know, for that long. Mm -hmm. But these are foods that it turned out once I sort of stripped away the diet stuff, I just enjoyed them and I just eat them without or drink them in the case of Diet Coke without sort of the diet mindset. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote about this, there was a couple of really interesting responses that I thought I really want to know what Christy thinks about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first is quite a few folks said something like, oh, I don't eat diet foods. I just eat small portions of the real thing I want. Hmm. And that to me is the diet mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, would love your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think it's, it's so interesting that people are saying, 
I just eat small portions of the real thing right. I want, right? Instead of, I don't, I don't bother with diet foods. I just have the real version or something, which, yeah. you know, cause yes. there's something about, it's like there's this need to limit, right? This need to still, um, have a, a smaller portion that is very much the diet mentality because why not just say I eat however much I want of, the real thing or, you know, in your case, I mean, I read that piece and I thought that was really fascinating and just well put the way that you sort of analyzed your relationship with those products. Mm -hmm. And I think especially in the case of Diet Coke, where it's something that you grew up with, where you didn't like you weren't dieting when you were first exposed right. to it. It was like the taste, the just literal flavor of the diet version instead of the regular version is what appeals to you. I think because my family was dieting, but I was not right. right, <laughs> you know, right. I was like, they bought it out of a diet mindset mm-hmm. for sure, but that was not my introduction to it or my experience of it. Right. Right. Which is right. so interesting and different because yeah. it's like this, you know, secondhand, sort of inheritance of diet culture, but you weren't being pushed to diet yourself. It was right. just because I had was privilege, I should underscore because I was a thin kid and some people weren't expecting that of me. Right. Right. Um, so I was allowed to just experience the magic of diet Coke. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But, but there's this privileging of, but it seems like where we've now moved with diet culture as it morphed into wellness culture, the wellness industry is now there's like this disdain for something like Diet Coke, like other people were saying to me, oh, I don't let myself drink Diet Coke because of the chemicals or because of the aspartame, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or someone said, you know, actually that was something I didn't let myself drink when I was dieting because I was clean eating and now I've reclaimed it. So there's like layers upon layers in this sort of Venn diagram happening between our feelings about processed foods and our feelings about these diet foods. And in both cases, it seems to me that we're really just food shaming, right? We're still playing into this idea that there's this hierarchy around food we need to subscribe to. Yeah, especially with that idea of, you know, quote unquote chemicals or that Diet Coke or, you know, regular Coke maybe for that matter can't fit into someone's plan because it's not healthy or it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's demonized by this kind of strain of wellness culture. And yeah, so I think there's so many different ways that people can relate to it. And I think, you know, your experience is one way where you kind of came by that, that flavor craving, honestly, you know, you, <laughs> you were introduced to it in a way that was for you, at least devoid of diet culture, not necessarily right. for the people introducing it to you, but, you know, but other people, maybe that was a staple in their dieting days or in their disordered eating days. Mm. And, you know, that's complicated too, right? Because if it's a disordered eating thing, if it's like someone is drinking a lot of caffeine to try to avoid eating, Mm -hmm. then maybe the thing there actually for, for someone with that is to try to wean off of all of those kinds of products for a while and eat more food, you know, and, and not have the, not have that disordered behavior of sort of using caffeine to mask hunger and stuff. And maybe for other folks who, you know, like you said, the, the, the person who, wouldn't allow themselves to have it in their orthorexia, clean eating days. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. the, the sort of way of breaking out of that and of challenging diet culture is to actually have it and to reclaim it. And so I think it's really different for everyone, you know, and, and for some folks too, there's a sense of maybe they go through that process of reclaiming or they go through the process of stepping away from it if they're using it in a disordered way or whatever it might be. And then there's a, a political consciousness that comes in that says, you know, I don't want to buy something that has diet on the label because I don't want to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. That's another that. way of yep. potentially relating to that too, right? But then I think there's, yeah, it's like 
you know, if that is sort of shaming yourself for what you really want, then maybe the, the real trick there is to kind of drop that political, you know, consciousness for the moment so that you can engage with the food you really want so that you're not creating this sense of deprivation or lack of permission with something that you really Mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. But if it's something you don't really love and you're sort of like, take it or leave it, then maybe that's a situation where you can say, yeah, I don't, I don't go in for that stuff, you know? Yeah. It was interesting. Some folks were talking about the diet foods that they had reclaimed and like skinny pop popcorn came up a Mm -hmm. lot. And I thought, Oh God, I've never bought that. And it's completely a reaction to the word skinny and, you know, and just being really turned off by the sort of overt fat shaming of that product. Mm -hmm. But while that's sort of a logical response to that marketing campaign, it also means that I'm like banning a food. You know what I mean? Right. But like, I mean, as it happens, I don't really like popcorn. So I don't think mm-hmm. in this case I'm like <laughs> depriving myself of something I would love, but it's an interesting, like, yeah, it's, you can really overthink this one. <laughs> um, you really but, can. But and sometimes, also, yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. you just got to go with what, with what you love. Like, I mean, I, I never, when I was in my sort of orthorexia days, I never got into like juicing or green juice. Cause it was mm-hmm. kind of a little early for that, like mm-hmm. early two thousands for me. And mm-hmm. the juicing trend didn't really come into like the, you know, maybe late two thousands or early 2010s. But I, um, these days, you know, occasionally if I see green juice on a menu or something or just out somewhere, I'm like, Ooh, that seems really good. Like mm-hmm. I want, I want that flavor. And I'll sometimes be like, oh, do I want to participate? Do I want to buy from this company that's like so gross and wellnessy and sort of against a lot of what I stand for? But in, you know, sometimes they'll be like, yeah, I don't want it that much. And other times they'll be like, that just seems really good. I'm, I'm going to have it, you know? Yeah. 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 So I think it's, it can be kind of a case by case thing too of, you know, how you're feeling on a given day. And it's useful too, to remember that that rhetoric around like voting with your dollars, like that really comes out of Mm -hmm. the alternative food movement and the wellness industry. Right. And, you know, there certainly is some power to it. Like consumers have a lot of power, but certainly in my case, if I was like, I'm not going to buy diet Coke because it has diet on the label, but I'm going to buy a different soda. Like I'm not really like, I'd probably buy regular (laughs) Coke. So the same company would be profiting off my decision and I just would enjoy my beverage less. So it's like, it's useful to remember that like your individual purchase is not, you know, rocking the boat is completely as sort of, we're often, there's so much guilt that goes into like being an ethical shopper and grocery Mm -hmm. shopper in that way. And a lot of that is, is more diet culture messaging. Totally. Yeah. It really is out of this sustainability, Michael Polonized, you know, wellness diet version of, of like how we're quote unquote supposed to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't have as much power as individual consumers or even as sort of a block of consumers as we're made out to have. And yes, unfortunately, think, but yeah. yes, it's also somewhat freeing to realize that you can truly sort of operate from that intuitive eating place and mm-hmm. have what you love and not worry so much about it. Um, totally. Yeah. So then the last question that came in that I would love some help unpacking, so it's a little more complicated is this reader wrote, okay, but what about diet foods you may not love, but which make you feel better? I am very sluggish and tired after eating rice, so I avoid it and make cauliflower rice. Actually, because she calls it cauliflower rice, which I think is, mm-hmm. I guess, <laughs> wellness shorthand for that. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying I love cauliflower rice, but I do prefer how I feel after eating it compared to actual rice. I don't eat cauliflower rice with the intent to be dieting, but I'm aware of the impact certain foods have on me and then make choices with that knowledge. 
I'm still figuring, still trying to figure out if I'm attempting anti-diet culture properly. Mm, Such a good question. I think there's so many layers to that too, right? Like, you know, I would say that I don't know where this person is in their sort of intuitive eating process, but Mm -hmm. I think it takes years for people to truly be able to look at how they feel after eating a certain food without having it be colored by their diet culture beliefs about that food. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of, you know, something like rice versus collie rice, right? Like it, it, it's definitely, it raises a red flag for me of, okay, where does this belief about how rice makes you feel comfort come from? Like, is it actually, because, you know, we've been fed so much about carbohydrates and as I've, you know, personally evolved in my own relationship with food and I've seen this in clients too, you know, there was this demonization of carbs and this sense of like carbs make me sluggish or make me crash or, you know, I don't feel as good after eating them at first. Right. But then over time, as the sort of prohibition on carbs starts to fade and you make peace with them and stuff, there's this sense like to me now, I'm like, I actually am not satisfied by a meal or don't feel energized after a meal if I don't have carbs. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really coming from a place of like having gotten rid of all that diet culture baggage about carbs and truly listening to my body and how it feels, you know, like, yes. And, and so I think, you know, just sort of playing with that, like how asking yourself the question, like, do I even need to be thinking about this right now? You know, with clients and people in my online course, I often say like, put aside questions about how particular foods make you feel at first and just really focus on the other principles of intuitive eating, you know, gentle nutrition, which is the 10th print, 10th and last principle. It's the last principle for a reason Mm -hmm. because it is so tricky to approach it in this way. And gentle nutrition doesn't even have that much to do with like how particular foods make you feel. It's also about like building meals that are going to be satisfying and sustaining and snacks that are going to be satisfying and sustaining and, Mm -hmm. you know, learning how to kind of energize and nourish yourself. And so I think that there's this misconception about intuitive eating maybe that I that probably comes from the wellness diet that probably comes from this strain of diet culture that's like you know x food makes you bloated and y food makes you mm-hmm. sluggish and you know in those words too right sluggish bloated yeah. like it's so much like implicit factor yeah. there yeah it's so coded and there are vague mm-hmm. symptoms and I don't want to say I don't yeah. want to say that and sound like I'm discounting her sort of lived experience of her body right but they are symptoms that are difficult to sort of name and pin down and tie to a concrete thing. There's a lot of reasons you might feel sluggish and tired on any particular day, totally unrelated to what you're eating and same with exactly. or Yeah. Yeah. And I think that diet culture has so conditioned us to look to the food as the mm-hmm. source when, mm-hmm. you know, not thinking about how much sleep did I get? How stressed am I? How, you know, whatever, so many different things can affect our, our, how we feel in our bodies, our level of fatigue or energy or, sense of bloating and digestion and stuff like that. So I think, again, kind of broadening the lens to what beyond the food is going on for me and like what, and, you know, cause we've talked, I think in, in our podcast episodes about the nocebo effect and mm-hmm. talked about that in my book too, where it's like, you know, this, it's, it's the converse of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is you think something's going to make you feel better. And so it does because there's the power of that mind body connection to actually 
help improve symptoms like pain and fatigue and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then conversely, the nocebo effect is you think something's going to make you feel worse. And so it does. And, you know, that's not to say it's all in your head, right? Because I, I know sort of how dismissive that can feel because I have had so many health conditions and concerns myself that doctors sort of implied were in my head and it actually was not the case. You know, there really was a real mind body connection happening. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is that we, you know, our, our thoughts about particular foods and other things, you know, medications and such do really have an effect on how we feel when taking that food or medication. Mm -hmm. And so kind of thinking about that in relation to this question too, right? You know, can this person sort of think through like how much of this maybe is the nocebo effect and how, how can you sort of change your beliefs about regular rice so that you're not kind of putting all of this pre-existing baggage on it that might end up making you feel worse after eating it versus if you can sort of divest a little bit from that, those beliefs. Yes. Um, your relationship with rice and how you feel after eating rice might change. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think I also just came away with a little sadness where she's saying, you know, I'm I'm not saying I love this food that I'm eating. And I just thought like, I want people to be able to eat foods that they love. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, if you're not loving it, then I think it's worth looking at why you're, why you're making yourself eat it. You know, that's sort of where I, where I land at the end of the day. And I think that goes for, you know, any diet foods that are, you know, cause some people, like you said, like some people think about diet foods and they have these really triggered responses to them because mm-hmm. they were forcing themselves to eat something and kind of convincing themselves they liked it. And then it turned out when they finally did let themselves eat the real thing that they didn't like it at all, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's like so worth giving yourself that permission. So, yeah. And like, you know, as you were talking, it, it sort of struck me too, how it's this conversation about rice versus cauliflower rice, but also why not rice versus pasta Mm -hmm. or bread or, Mm -hmm. you know, is there something about that where are are you actually avoiding all carbs and thinking all carbs are bad and, or gluten, is there a belief about gluten that is, um, sort Mm -hmm. of coming from that nocebo place or that wellness diet place too, that's, Mm -hmm. that's making you avoid those foods. And so the only option feels like it's cauliflower rice, you know, like if that's the case, then I think there's definitely some work to be done of, unlearning those negative beliefs about, about the other food. And of course, you know, there's a tiny percentage of people like 1% or less than 1% of the population who has celiac disease and would need to avoid gluten. So I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about that, but you know, even I think among people who do have celiac, I think it's worth sort of working through the maybe harmful negative beliefs you might have about gluten containing foods so that you're not demonizing anything in your mind, even if you're not eating them for self care. Mm, you know, I think that's a good point. Just kind of allowing yourself to drop the, the negativity about particular foods can help you feel a little more, you know, grounded in your food choices. And mm-hmm. cause I definitely know some people with celiac disease who, um, sort of rebel against that deprivation and restriction by eating gluten. And that's, not super helpful for their well-being, you know, that mm-hmm. can be mm-hmm. definitely physically uncomfortable and and potentially harmful in the long term too. And so, you know, I think getting yourself to a place where you're not in this restrict binge cycle is always helpful. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think that's 
That is very logical and makes me really excited to read your next book. So, you know, no pressure, but hurry up and write it. (laughs) Actually, I think you and I are on very similar timelines with our next Mm -hmm. books. And so I will not pressure you at all because (laughs) yeah, you know, (laughs) we're both feeling the pressure. Um, Totally. Yes. Uh, But Christy, thank you so much. This was a really super helpful conversation. I always love chatting with you. Um, Why don't you tell my listeners where they can find more of your work? Yeah. Thanks so much, Virginia. It's really good to talk with you as always. And um, people can find more of my work on my website, christyharrison.com. I actually do a weekly newsletter as well. And that's at christyharrison.com slash newsletter, or you can just link to it from the site and yep. uh, also have my book and podcast and all the other stuff I do is there as well. Awesome. We will link to all of that in the transcript. Thank you so much. Thank you.